Welcome back to the show that tells you, you are a quantum computer with free will at the apex of a hierarchy of conscious beings. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 17 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode, we'll be talking about nested hierarchical consciousness, the idea that information processing is occurring at multiple different scales in your brain, and this information needs to be communicated up and down the hierarchy. By the end of today's episode, we'll ask the question, are you a conscious being that's composed of conscious beings that's composed of conscious beings ad infinitum? This episode is available on YouTube and an audio-only version is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and hop for metaphysical Zero concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. Hey there, my name is Justin Riddle. A little background on myself. I got a PhD from UC Berkeley in psychology, studying cognitive neuroscience. While at UC Berkeley, I taught a course on quantum consciousness for seven years. And this YouTube series is really a translation and extension of that material. Right now, I do research in humans and I deliver magnetic and electrical non-invasive brain stimulation in order to get a better understanding of the role of neural oscillations in cognition and how they become impaired in psychiatric illness. So the topic for today is nested hierarchical consciousness. And I'll be talking about in particular this theory called the nested observer windows model. And this is a model that I developed um, in collaboration with Professor Jonathan Schooler, who's at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And we've been working on this model for many years now. And at the time of this recording, um, we're currently in the process of submitting it for publication. So to give you a big overview on what this model is, and then speculating on some of the implications for quantum consciousness and quantum computers um, in general at the end, we'll be running through the details of this model and some of the evidence from cognitive neuroscience and some of just the theoretical motivation for this model. And this will really tie into the overall um, story of this series but this one uh, is a much more sort of based in the cognitive neuroscience literature, so I'll be doing a lot of talking about that. So here's the pitch, and I'm going to start off by reading a quote from William James. And William James is um, really one of the like foundational philosophers, researchers, um, doing a lot of introspection in the early days of the field of psychology. And so the quote goes like this. We know what it is to get out of bed on a freezing morning in a room without a fire and how the very vital principle within us protests against the ordeal. Probably most persons have lain on certain mornings for an hour at a time, unable to brace themselves to the resolve. We think how late we shall be, how the duties of the day will suffer. We say, I must get up. This is ignominious, etc., but still, the warm couch feels too delicious, the cold outside too cruel, and resolution faints away and postpones itself again and again, just as it seemed on the verge of bursting the resistance and passing over into the decisive act. Now, how do we ever get up under such circumstances? If I may generalize from my own experience, we more often than not get up without any struggle or decision at all. We suddenly find that we have got up, a fortunate lapse of consciousness occurs. We forget both the warmth and the cold. We fall into some reverie connected with the day's life, in the course of which the idea flashes across us. Holo, I'm, I must lie here no longer. An idea which at that lucky instant awakens no contradictory or paralyzing suggestion and consequently produces immediately its appropriate motor effects. It was our acute consciousness of both the warmth and the cold during the period of struggle which paralyzed our activity then and kept our idea of rising in the condition of wish and not of will. 
The moment these inhibitory ideas ceased, the original idea exerted its effects. William James, Principles of Psychology, Volume 2. So what's so fascinating about this is I think it violates a few different um, sort of intuitions that we have about our own experience um, being a human being. And one of those is this idea that we have this narrator in our mind. And so we've kind of been told and we kind of take it at face value that there is this narrative flow to our minds and that we're sort of witnessing this unfolding of events. We have some free will, some ability to change that unfolding of events, but we view it as a single narrative self inside of us. And what this really challenges us to think about is how when we decide to do things, we are sometimes met with internal resistance. And what is it when you have a conflicting set of ideas in your mind? I would argue, and the nested observer window model argues, that there's actually this debate, this collaboration, this dialogue between many different voices in your head. And it's not really just a single narrative self, but so much of our inner life of our cognition is really characterized by inner conflict. Should I do this? Should I do that? That might be fun, but am I wasting my time? You know, there's all this debate, this internal struggle that we experience, which is really core and inherent to our, you know, our lives. Another sort of intuition that we have that the nested observer window or now model um, sort of goes against is this idea that we have sort of a possessive or a feeling of ownership over our thoughts. We think, I created this thought. I am the creative owner of my thoughts. I am generating and sort of assembling things together in my mind. And while a lot of times there are periods where we're actively thinking about something and we really are assembling these big macro abstract ideas together and we're forming new solutions or new concepts out of sort of more basic concepts. And all of that is going on at this very abstract level. But in addition, we get many ideas that just pop into our mind. And we sometimes don't even want ownership of our ideas. Sometimes an idea pops into your head and you wonder, why did I think that? Where did that come from? And sometimes you even suppress the unwanted thought or you're kind of in awe, like where did this thought come from? And so in the now model, we propose that thoughts do sort of emerge into your mind fully formed. And even when you are assembling thoughts together, you're doing so at such an abstract level that there's so much built into those concepts already. And even the basic concepts which are there for you to assemble already have this sort of coming out of nowhere, popping into existence feeling to them where there's so much that is entailed in those in those basic concepts, even in the act of assembling. And then the, the sort of another or like the final violation of intuition that I'll provide right now, and there'll be more uh, throughout throughout this episode, is the idea that we have a limited interface with our own bodies, right? And so the idea is when I decide I'm going to move around in the world, that decision to move can sometimes be met with resistance or the movement itself might not come out like how I thought it was going to come out. Maybe I say, oh, I'm going to walk over there and then I trip and fall, you know, face first into the floor. That was not the plan, right? So we are enacting very abstract action plans into our body and we're not aware of the fine motor movements all the detailed muscle activation that needs to occur and so we're really operating at these very high abstract levels um, and so there's limited influence that we even have over our bodies and another interesting way of thinking about this is you know you can consciously pay attention to breathing but when you're not paying attention you're still breathing you know, it's one of those weird flexible acts where you can simultaneously take it under volitional control or just let it go on unconsciously. So the argument is that, you know, you're at the top of this hierarchy of conscious beings and you have limited influence on the lower levels beneath you.
So that's sort of from an experiential sense why the now model is is sort of challenging the status quo of how we think about ourselves. From a practical sense, when we do science, we're trying to understand, for the most part, the human condition. What is it like to be a mind? Um, who am I? What's going on? And of course, there's more like medical applications or technological applications. But in the field of psychology, we're trying to understand fundamentally, you know, who we are. And so in that field, there's many different researchers studying the phenomenon of the human mind. But some people study fMRI, EEG, these really macro scale um, entire regions activating the blood flow to different regions in the brain with fMRI. These are macroscopic large regions. With EEG, we're studying these big electric fields that, that emerge from the brain and relating those to, to cognition. But then people also study neurons and neurons are operating at the scale of a thousand times per second. Right. So while fMRI EEG is happening on the scale of seconds or subseconds, you know, a small fraction of a second, but maybe just like one tenth of a second, neurons are activating at scales at the kilohertz range, like a thousand times per second. And then beneath that, there's proteins and there's synaptic interactions or, or protein pathways that are that are, you know, processing information in their own ways. And those are happening another order of magnitude faster. Um, let's say like the megahertz or even gigahertz range, right? Um, a million times per second or sometimes even a billion times per second. So there's all these different scales and you'll find people that are neuroscientists and they're interested in the human mind, but they'll study the human mind at so many different scales. And the question is, you know, we can find some relationship or correlation of these fMRI and EEG signals to our minds. We find a correlation of neural activity to our perceptions and our actions. And with proteins, once again, the uh, presence of a protein or not, or, uh, you know, when light comes into the eyeball, it activates a protein cascade and that correlates with the detection of light. So that also relates to our experience. And so the question is, how are all these different processes happening at multiple different scales? And the nested observer window model proposes a unique solution where you can view all of these different levels as meaningfully processing information and also sharing that information up and down across these very different spatial temporal scales, right? So we have centimeters and seconds, we have millimeters and kilohertz, and then we have um, micrometers or even angstroms in the, in the range of megahertz and gigahertz, right? And so all of these processes seem to be contributing to our experience, but how do we study these? How do we make sense of these? Um, and it would be really cool if you could have more interdisciplinary study where people studying neurons could talk directly with like people using fMRI, right? It would be cool to have ways in which in a principled manner, the information or the content being created at these different scales is being communicated um, to each other. So that's a lot of the big picture motivation for the now model. So now I'm gonna propose what is the now model fundamentally? So the now model fundamentally is a way of defining information integration units, and we call them observer windows. And an observer window is at a certain spatial temporal scale, and it's integrating information, and it has sort of a rhythmic processing to that information integration, which is sort of the time scale, the integration rate at, what, at which it operates. And then within that scale, you have a bunch of observer windows communicating with each other at the same level. And then you also have observer windows nested within each other so that each observer window is composed of observer windows and then information is processed up and down um, these different scales. And so we propose sort of a unique way of information integration, which we call mosaic integration. And the idea here is that we're really leveraging the nested nature of this system 
And the metaphor for what this looks like and the details will need to be hashed out um, by some computational model, I would assume. But the idea is that this feels like a mosaic image where you can think of a, an image that's made up of a bunch of tiles and each of those tiles is itself an image. But when you're at the level of a full image composed of tiles, you know, a single gestalt comes out, a single representation, a single image appears, but then you can zoom into these tiles and you'll find that each tile has an image and that tile is composed of more tiles and you can zoom in um, infinitely or maybe there's some limitation on how much you could zoom. Um, but this, this form of mosaic integration is the way that you're able to assemble and build more abstract representations. And a cool property of this form of integration would be that you're sort of preserving a lot of the rich detail as you move up to the higher and higher um, levels in the hierarchy. All right, so we have these observer windows. They have a fixed boundary, a fixed spatial and fixed temporal boundary on, on where they are and what they are. And they're integrating information from their environment. And they're also nested within other observer windows and processing information up and down um, this hierarchy. And so there's a few implications. And so first I'm gonna talk about the implications for consciousness. Where does consciousness fit into this? And then I'll go into the, the details of what this um, information integration might look like and the phenomenon coming out of cognitive neuroscience that, that motivates um, thinking about this model. And then I'll end talking about how quantum mechanics might play a role in particular in one of these um, principles that I'm gonna talk about in a second here. So the question is, where does consciousness come in? And so one idea is that consciousness is just at the top level, that you have this hierarchy of observer windows and you, the viewer, are the highest level. You are the one observer window at the top of the hierarchy and there's all these sort of autonomous observer windows at lower levels or semi-autonomous observer windows integrating information but all of those are just worker bees and you are the only one that's a conscious being and you're the only one that really has the, um, the qualia, the feeling of being a self. And all these lower levels are, yeah, just unconscious, subconscious, pre-conscious, proto-conscious, whatever, you know, fun prefix you want to fit onto conscious. And this really feels a lot like the global workspace model or, um, these sort of emergentist views of consciousness where you try to describe, you know, at the level of the whole brain, there's some sort of um, emergent property or some sort of being that comes out at this highest level. An alternative way of putting consciousness into the now model is that there's some sort of threshold for information complexity or for the integration of information to be occurring there's some threshold for what that looks like. And then only once you breach that threshold, do you have a conscious being. So here there would be some level in the brain or in the body where you have a conscious being. And above that level are conscious beings nested within each other. But beneath that level, it's automaton, right? It's non-conscious, um, just processors. The third and final option is sort of a form of panpsychism, pan, pan meaning all and psychism being, you know, a root of consciousness. So panpsychism, everything is conscious. And now in the now model, we assert that, you know, not everything can arbitrarily be called a consciousness, but um, in the now model, the observer windows have a biological infrastructure, a boundary, um, that, that limits what could be a conscious being, but you're at the top of the hierarchy and there's conscious beings nested beneath you and it goes down and down and down um, and all of those are conscious beings at, at various smaller and smaller levels. So not quite sure what the correct answer is. 
I personally really love this panpsychist model where all these levels are conscious beings. Um, and we'll come back to this idea a bit later, but it really does kind of blow your mind. And so maybe I'm just drawn to it because it is such a mind blowing reality shifting type of way of viewing yourself as being composed genuinely of conscious beings. You're running the show, maybe mostly you're at the top, probably, but there's still conscious beings beneath you and you're sort of, um, the CEO of this corporation of conscious beings directing what to do, but all of these entities underneath you still have a say. They have, you know, an input on what gets, you know, gets carried out eventually. And all of your reality and perception is being filtered through these lower levels. And you're making decisions at this very abstract higher level. So it's still sort of a, uh, yeah, an integrated interplay between all these different levels of conscious beings. All right, so now I'm going to dive into the three principles of the now model, and they are synchrony. This is a zero phase lag, high degree of correlation between a bunch of components, and this forms the integration unit forms the observer window. It is difficult to achieve a zero phase lag, entirely correlated system with high synchrony. Everything is so coupled together that it loses individuality and it becomes a single entity, right? That is synchrony, the formation of an observer window. The second principle is coherence. And coherence is a non-zero phase lag coupling between two observer windows. And this is two observer windows at the same spatial temporal level. So they're both processing information. They both have their own integration rate, you know, of, of how they're processing information, but they can communicate uh, with each other. And it's a weak transient communication. They form these functional networks of, of observer windows communicating with each other. Um, but it's inherently unstable and transient, and you don't lose the individuality of the, of the two observer windows that are coherent. And then the final and third principle is cross-frequency coupling. And this is once again a weak form of coupling between two observer windows, except the catch here is that the observer windows are at different spatiotemporal scales. So you have big, slow, rhythmically integrating observer windows and these much smaller, faster observer windows integrating information and they're coupled to each other. And once again, the coupling is, is more weak and it happens between observer windows nested within other higher level observer windows. And this is really sort of the critical way in which information is transferred up and down a hierarchy, right? Up and down this, this nested observer window hierarchy. And so we propose that electrical activity really serves as the lingua franca or the you know, universal generalizable principle at play here. And so I'll talk to you um, today about brain regions or brain nuclei and neurons. And we you know, speculate that proteins are also observer windows and potentially there's higher or lower observer windows also at play here. But we'll really focus on brain nuclei and neurons. Um, and we'll be talking about electrical activity as really this universal form of communication where even though they're comprised of very different material and they're you know, operating at very different scales, if information integration can occur, um, using a common substrate, even though it's at different levels, this sort of facilitates that communication of information. And we believe that this is a plausible solution for the protein scale, maybe some intermediary scales, and potentially at even more fundamental lower scales, that electricity or electromagnetism could be a very fundamental um, sort of substrate for, for processing this information. And it's very apparent that electrical activity plays a fundamental role in the level of neurons in brain nuclei, which we'll, we'll talk about as examples. 
So I'm going to start off with our first principle, synchrony. And synchrony is the formation of an observer window. And so a funny example or analogy here is if you see a bunch of lights attached to the limbs of a human and they're walking through the night, so all you can see are those lights, you'll witness the movement of a human. But if the human stands still, you just see a smattering of lights and there's no human form available. And so when we're studying the processing of information, we do really need to focus on that process, you know, the movement through time of these biological systems. And what's beautiful about synchrony is synchrony is really the creation and the formation of a single unit. And so I feel like this is almost like like it's almost like a nuance that you accept, but you don't even realize that you've already accepted this, is that you call things by their name. You call something a thing, and in calling something a thing, you're inferring that that thing has a strong degree of structural and temporal stability. And so synchrony is really just putting a definition and a label on what that definition of a thing is, you know? And so a good example is like a protein. We just call it a protein, but really there's such a high degree of synchronization within the protein that it acts as a single protein, right? Neurons act as single cells and brain nuclei act as single brain nuclei. And so how do they do that? Well, I'll just go through the neuron and nuclei example. But neurons have this uh, phospholipid bilayer membrane. It acts as a capacitor for the neuron. And so it stores up this strong electrical potential inside of the neuron. And you reach a point where the neuron has such strong electrical coupling in its, you know, internally that it behaves as if it's a single electrical functional unit. Similarly, a brain nuclei exhibits these synchronized electrical states where the entire nuclei will undergo this single electrical potential and you can witness these electrically vibrating fluctuations in the nuclei that you're observing and they have these characteristic electrical rhythms that they exhibit and these are enabled by a lot of structural properties in the neuron or in the architecture of the neurons. Typically, it's called um, effaptic coupling. Essentially, this is when a bunch of neurons are oriented together and they undergo their own electrical potentials or action potentials or firing, um, as people usually call it. And a lot of these neurons are all oriented so that the electric fields generated within the neurons are then propagated across a whole population. And so what you see in the wild is you see a brain nuclei will exhibit these big electric fluctuations that are, that are basically enabled by all of these parallel fibers in these brain nuclei. And then they start to serve a functional role and it begins to act as a single functional unit, similar to these neurons behaving as single functional units. And so what's really cool is that if you are measuring the electrical potential in the brain, and let's say we're focusing on this slower frequency range where you would see brain nuclei operating, you'll have this background activity in your electrical recording. And when, you're, when you found a brain nuclei that's forming some functional area, some functional unit, you'll see this bump this rhythmic oscillation emerging from just the background noise of your recording. And you can be fairly certain that when you see these electrical bumps in, the, in your recording, after running a Fourier transform and breaking it down into the frequency domain, you can be sure that there's some sort of brain nuclei processing information at this certain scale. And so the brain nuclei have clearly defined boundaries um, and they have a very clearly defined rhythm at which they are operating. So what does synchrony mean practically or to cognition? And so this was an idea proposed by Wolfgang Singer called binding by synchrony. And here we're using this exact concept in the now model. 
And the idea is that there's this difficult challenge in psychology called the binding problem. I have a gestalt representation of, let's say, a chair. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I know how to use it. I know what the texture is like. I know what the color is like. How do I have this single representation of a chair? How does all this information get bound together? And so Wolfgang Singer proposed that synchrony forms a natural sort of neural mechanism for how you can have information coming from different sources, and then it gets bound together through this synchrony. In the now model, we propose that there is a integration rate, that the observer window opens, it accumulates a bunch of information, and then it binds that information into a single gestalt representation. And once you have formed it, it exists, and you experience it if you are that observer window, and then the next cycle, a new representation is, is generated. And it could be that this is some predictive coding model where there's sort of a model of the world that gets update periodically. And so there's an update that kicks in. And so there's sort of a continuity or a stability through time. Or you could view this as sort of these like discrete refreshes of information with no time between them. It's just now, 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 now. There's just an experience now, a gestalt experience now, and another gestalt experience now, and there actually is no time between those discrete moments. So there's sort of an alternative framing for what this might feel like um, in our conscious experience. So an example I really love is called the flicker fusion rate. And there was a, you know, th this phenomenon has been studied quite a bit. Um, but there was a cognitive neuroscience study that came out um, in the past 10 years or so that was really um, interesting and impactful by connecting it to these electrical oscillations. So the idea is that if I present two flashes of light very quickly, you will see them as two different flashes of light. But as the time between the flashes shrinks, you hit a point where the two flashes are really just one flash now right? And so the flashes fuse. You have a flickering light, and then you have the fusion into a single light. The exact moment where you flip over from two flashes into a single flash is called the flicker fusion rate. That is the rate at which the lights switch from flicker into fusion. And there was this really cool study by Samaha and Postal who were looking at the visual cortex, and the visual cortex has it, is, it can be conceptualized as a brain nuclei with a um, electrical fluctuation and electrical potential. And this one is often called the alpha oscillation, and it happens to be around 10 hertz, 10 times per second. And what they found is that there's some variation between people at what that integration rate or what that refresh rate is in visual cortex. And so people who have a slightly faster um, alpha oscillation in visual cortex, they can actually still perceive the flicker at a smaller and smaller time scale. So it takes, you know, they have to be much closer for the, fl uh, the flashes to fuse. And the idea is that every alpha oscillation is opening a window, taking in some information, but if you have a slower rhythm in the back of your brain, in the visual cortex, then both of the flashes are gonna end up in the same window and they're gonna get integrated together into a fused single flash. And so this really fits nicely with the now model where these observer windows have these integration rates and this is predictive of the rhythmic refresh of information in this observer window. And so now we're talking about this rhythmic refresh rate of these gestalt perceptions in different brain nuclei what does this mean for you as a conscious being? What is this rhythmic refresh rate? Well, we argue in the now model that this rhythmic refresh rate is equivalent to your perception of time. And so the temporal processing of this information has a fixed rate. If you're a brain nuclei, it'll be occurring around the scale of 10 times per second, five times per second. But if you're a neuron, it might be happening at 1,000 times per second or 100 times per second, much, much, much faster, right? 
And so what it is like to be that observer window is to feel a flow of time at the rate at which your refreshes are occurring. And so what's really fascinating is there's a few anomalous experiences in our experience um, that relate to time perception. So when you're in a life-threatening situation, you're driving down the freeway, a truck changes lanes into you and you like are feeling like an impending uh, doom, you will have the experience of time slowing down. What's happening? Could it be that the observer window that is you is increasing the integration rate? That frequency of gestalt representation generation is increased. You're tapping into more concrete, less abstract information. You have less time to integrate a bunch of interesting information. You have less integration time, but you can get much more refreshes, right? You can get more static frames of what is happening. And so time is experienced as a dilation where it feels like time is moving slow, but really you're having more experience per second because your observer window has frequency shifted into the faster range. On the flip side, we can have the opposite where time folds inward and dissolves away and an hour passes in an instant and we lose track of time and suddenly we look up from our book or we pull out of our thoughts and 10 minutes have flown by and we're shocked that all this time has disappeared. Where did it go? So we suggest that in this example, your observer window is shifting in the opposite direction, right? It's shifting towards longer integration times. More information is able to enter into this open window and gets bound into a gestalt representation, which is a large abstract integration of a lot of interesting and creative abstract ideas. So when you're daydreaming, when you're mind wandering, when you're lost in thought, you might have a, a, a sort of stretching of your temporal experience as the integration windows expand to get more and more information into a single integration and your thoughts become more abstract and yet time flies by because you have less moments of consciousness per second. However, there's more information in this abstract quality in each of those thoughts. So we're going to move on to the second principle of coherence. And coherence is really best understood by contrasting it with synchrony. So synchrony, remember, is how we create an observer window. This is no easy feat. You need a lot of biological infrastructure like a capacitine um, membrane or all these fibers oriented to create high synchronization in the brain nuclei. So synchrony is the creation of single entities with zero lag. Everything is just one thing all of a sudden. And we can form this equivalent of a conscious being with the capacity to integrate information. Coherence is like a conversation. So the analogy here is that coherence can be understood of as two people having a conversation. One person talks, the other one listens. The other person talks, the other person listens. And so there's a communication going on and the words need to be transmitted to the other person, right? There is a non-zero phase lag. There is a lag between the information going from one person to the other. And when the information is received, it's integrated in that observer window and then it, you know, some new information is sent back, right? And so when two people are having a productive conversation, they are coherent. If you were to track their audio waves, you would find that they're sort of vibing together, but they're not happening at the same time, right? It's not the same person speaking the same words simultaneously. I mean, sometimes that can arbitrarily happen, but that's more of a predictive thing, right? <laughs> Um, so their communication has delay and you wouldn't say, oh, that conversation's going so well. They've just fused into the same person, right? There's still two different people. The synchrony is the creation of the two separate people and the coherence is the communication between the different people, right? So in practice, 
in biology, we see that when brain regions want to communicate with each other, there's something called neuronal communication through neuronal coherence. This was developed by Pascal Fries. And Pascal Fries proposed essentially what I just told you here. You have these rhythmically oscillating different units, and when they want to transmit information to each other, they will sort of align their oscillations so that one transmits some information, the other one receives it, and the transmissions are, are sent back and forth, right? And so if we look into the brain and we look at some complex cognitive control tasks where multiple regions need to communicate with each other, you'll see that they'll become coherent with each other and that information will preferentially follow these different pathways. And so what's really cool about coherence is that it's very dynamic, it's very transient. And so this really contributes to cognitive flexibility, right? So if I had information come into my brain and it always went down the same pathways every single time, this would limit my flexibility to dynamically interact with my environment and actually, we want our attention to, to, to route information in this pathway versus another pathway. And so when you want to pay attention to one quality but not another, you'll see that those um, regions processing the qualities that you're paying attention to will become coherent with each other. And the ones that, that you don't want information to go to will kind of not have that strengthened um, coherence together. And so there's these really fascinating phenomena in the brain where so much of our processing is linked to very interesting, distinct rhythms. And probably the most pronounced in uh, human cognition is what's called the theta rhythm. This is about five times to eight times per second, kind of five to eight range. And the theta rhythm is found in so much of our behavior and in a lot of our information coming into our brains and in a very special brain nuclei called the hippocampus. And so when I am speaking to you right now, the words that I am saying to you are actually entering your ears at a rhythm of the theta rhythm. And shockingly, this theta rhythm is found across many different cultures and languages. Doesn't matter what country you're born in, what language or ancestry you have, all languages that we've been able to find have a very pronounced 8 hertz to 5 hertz theta rhythm in the speech envelope that gets transmitted. So cross-culturally, people are talking to each other at the exact same rate, and it seems to have maybe an evolutionary and a biological basis, right? So if your brain and your hippocampus, this memory storage, episodic memory construction region in the brain, it is vibrating in the theta rhythm. And so when you're giving people words and language, you want it to resonate into their episodic memories and you want it to be constructed into present new memories, but you also want it to access old memories. In addition, your eyes are moving at roughly a theta rhythm. Even when you fixate on a, on a single fixed point, your eye is actually twitching around in what's called, uh, what's called micro saccades, small eye movements. Those micro saccades and those macro saccades, as you look around a room and explore a new environment, are all locked to the theta rhythm, right? So you have audition, theta, uh, vision, theta, major memory storage in theta, and so all of these different regions in the brain are processing different information, but they're transmitting that information to each other in the theta rhythm. And there was this really cool paper by the Hanselmeyer lab that, that actually presented people with snippets of audio and flashes of video. And when those snippets and flashes were presented in theta rhythm coherently, you were actually able to assemble an episodic memory for those audiovisual pairings. And when they looked in the brain, they found electrical activity rhythmically vibrating in theta frequency in visual cortex and in audio cortex. And there was increased coherence when you were forming a memory and when you were successfully sort of pairing that information together. And so coherence is a way that this audio nuclei, this visual nuclei 
are sharing information dynamically, routing it over to the hippocampus, routing it up to higher order regions that need to process some information. And so coherence seems to be this really fundamental um, role for how information is routed throughout the brain. So what might this feel like? And so I think there's this idea that, you know, hey, we're just routing information around. And so it's kind of just like switchboards or circuit breakers, just pumping information here and there. But I wonder and I speculate whether the experience of being an observer window within a coherent transient functional network feels like a dialogue, feels like a conversation, maybe even like a debate and not necessarily just like the direct one-to-one -one transmission of information, right? We go back to the analogy of two individuals communicating. If you're an observer window and you're at this macro scale, you have all this neural information processing, protein information processing, all these scales beneath you working to generate all this information, does this macro scale electrical activity that we can measure for this nuclei, is it like the equivalent of like a fully fledged personality? And here, you know, there's a couple movies like uh, that movie Inside Out by Pixar, which sort of depicts these different personalities communicating with each other in the brain. Is coherence more like a dialogue than just, you know, sending a signal through a wire or like a carrier pigeon from one place to another. Instead, it's a dynamic interplay or conversation between a bunch of personalities. And so there's this guy, uh, Richard Schwartz, who uh, he was studying, he was doing family therapy where he would take a dysfunctional family and they'd go through a psychotherapeutic process where they'd communicate and they'd look at different fa uh, family roles that different people were playing. And he found that psychologically, this psychotherapy that he was using actually works well in an individual. An individual has an internal family system, as he calls it, a bunch of personalities coexisting within your mind and within your psyche. And these different personalities can be dysfunctional. The conversation could not be going well. There could be dysfunction in the family or there could be a coherent family unit where the personalities are flowing and communicating effectively with each other. Is coherence some signature or some direct neural mechanism for how these different personalities in your brain communicate with each other? It's not a carrier pigeon. It's a dynamic interesting conversation between sub entities within you. Um, so being a observer window and undergoing coherence might feel like more of a conversation than just shooting signals through wires. Third and final principle is cross frequency coupling. And oh my God, I love this principle. It is so exciting. So much of my own personal research has been moving towards looking at cross frequency coupling because it's really this fascinating way that you can study multiple spatial temporal scales interacting with each other. And so the first discovery of cross frequency coupling was in the hippocampus, the region I mentioned to you previously. And what they found was that the brain nuclei of the hippocampus was undergoing these big, slow rhythmic theta oscillations. And meanwhile, high frequency neurons were also activating and going through these action potentials and they were coding for different regions in space. So there's a rat running around a maze and there's different cells called play cells that fire for different locations along the maze. And they found that within the theta rhythm, a sequence of these place cells were firing off. And as the place cells were activating, they were all locked to a particular phase within the theta oscillation. So every time the theta oscillation like went up, you get a bunch of place cells activating and then it goes down and there's silence. And then it goes back up and a bunch of activations and it goes down and there's silence, right? And so this is called phase amplitude coupling. It's a form of cross-frequency coupling where the phase of the slow frequency oscillation is related to the amplitude of the higher frequency oscillation, right? And so research shows that you can actually decode trajectories of movement from these theta oscillations in the hippocampus 
And when you go down to the neural level, you just see a cell fires for this place, a cell fires for that place. But from the electric fields of the hippocampus, you could figure out a trajectory of motion, right? And so it's, it's basically forming some form of abstraction, right? It's sequencing, it's organizing, it's, it's basically ordering the lower level information into this gestalt, more abstract representation. So it's not just like binding a more complex representation like we talked about with synchrony, but it's really this form of abstraction. You're building a more abstract representation from more concrete information, right? Trajectory is more abstract than just a, a point. So here you have like a vector and maybe a speed, but below it, you just have a single point in, in space and maybe in time. And so we can find a lot of evidence that when you're doing these higher order cognitive tasks, right? When you're undergoing some mental function which requires abstract knowledge, you'll find this phase amplitude coupling pattern, this cross frequency coupling pattern, where you see these big, slow rhythmic brain nuclei coupled to these faster rhythms. And the, the real canonical one is called theta gamma coupling. And this was the example in the hippocampus that I mentioned. And you find theta gamma coupling whenever you need to generate more abstract representations or you need to build more abstract items from more concrete items. And so this seems to be sort of a universally applied mechanism in the brain and it's gaining a lot of traction and we're finding more and more evidence that this is taking place. Uh, newer rhythm, which I've been sort of pioneering and getting really interested in, is called delta-beta coupling. And this is the idea um, of similar to the, to the building of abstract ideas or representations, delta-beta coupling has been much more strongly linked to action initiation and decision-making and action planning. So in a way, it's sort of like the top-down equivalent to the theta-gamma rhythm, where you see these big, slow, prefrontal decision-making regions oscillating when you're trying to choose between a couple different options. And then this really fast beta rhythm, which is linked to spinal cord activation and muscle innervation, muscle activation. There's this coupling between this big, slow decision-making process and then the spinal cord bodily movements that get enacted. And so just like cross-frequency coupling sort of has this bottom-up flow of information as you're building more abstract representations moving up the nested observer window hierarchy, there might be other frequency bands that are really dedicated to taking the information from these higher-order, more abstract regions big slow observer windows down into the details, right? We gotta translate all these big abstract action plans into move that muscle, move this muscle, you know, do this complex piano uh, play with your fingers, but it comes from these big abstract cartoony decisions that are being made. So what does this feel like? Well, I think this one has a very clear experiential analogy, right? The idea is, and I mentioned this earlier in the episode, ideas popping into your head. This is the theta gamma experience. An idea shows up and it's in your mind and it's fully formed, it's abstract. Delta beta, I wanna move my arm over here. I'm not thinking about, I'm gonna use my flexor extensor and I'm gonna use my elbow to do this thing, right? It's all just this fluid motion that occurs and I have very abstract ideas of what is actually happening and somehow it gets translated. I mean, you can barely think about what you're doing and you'll go and do it, right? A good analogy is with uh, professional sports, professional musicians, right? They, they learn these complex motor movements, but then it gets encoded into lower levels and then they're just activating cartoons, right? There's just these cartoonified decisions being performed and then, and then it occurs. And I think another cool uh, analogy related to this is that cross-frequency coupling is limited, right? It's a weak form of coupling. You can only influence one level beneath you, one level above you. You can't get much deeper than that, right? So you hit a wall and you can't go deeper. 
what does that feel like? I think a good example is optical illusions, right? These undulating visual patterns that come from black and white checkered uh, visual effects. And so we know it's not real. We know that there's nothing actually undulating. However, we can't stop ourselves from seeing it. You don't have control over it. It's just coming up. So we don't have like ultimate perceptual control over what our eyes are doing. You know, we're only influencing one level beneath ourselves. There are weird examples like with the Necker cube. It's a cube that you can view from two different um, perspectives. And in that example, people are able to flip between these different ways of viewing it. Is it popping out of the screen? Is it sinking into the screen? And you can actually flip that at will. But it's challenging. It's hard to flip the Necker cube for some people. Other people find it easier. So what makes the difference between people that have a, an easy time flipping the Necker cube and others that don't, you know? So there's, I think there's like emphasizing this, uh, you're the volitional agent at this higher level trying to have top-down influence on these lower levels. And sometimes you struggle to have the influence that you want to have. Other times it takes the form of cartoonified abstraction, right? And yet it makes its way down, but but you're only operating at a very higher level. All right, quick note on fractals, and then we'll hop into the quantum computer question at the end. So when we measure electrical activity in the brain, if this was all real, then we'd want to see this sort of scale-free observer windows at all these different levels, cross-frequency coupling going down this hierarchy, all this interesting resonance structure. And what we do find is that the background noise of the brain has this one over F power distribution and it's called pink noise. White noise is like equal noise at all frequency bands. Pink noise is shifted towards the lower frequency end. So lower frequencies have more noise and higher frequencies have less noise. This sounds like the ocean. You can look up pink noise and listen to it for yourself but it sounds a lot more like the ocean, whereas white noise sounds like static. And the pink noise is a little more soothing than this pure static. So when we measure the brain, we see pink noise. We hear the ocean in the electrical activity of our brains. And what this implies is that these big low frequency rhythms have a bit more of an influence over the overall signal in our in our brains and in our bodies and this is what we would want to see if there was a scale-free fractal-like organization to the activity in our bodies and so there's a lesser known uh principle in fractal mathematics called the hearst exponent so if you take the mandelbrot set you kind of have this like buddha looking figure at, at once one view of the Mandelbrot set. And as you zoom, 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 you keep zooming, you see all these crazy patterns, crazy, crazy, crazy patterns. Boom, you see the Buddha shape again once you get deep enough into the Mandelbrot. Keep zooming, keep zooming, keep zooming. Boom, there it is again. There is a certain rate at which you will zoom and then you see the original pattern that you started off with, right? And so there's a rate of zoom until you hit an interesting pattern. And so what we're using or what we're sort of speculating is that observer windows are kind of like fractals in that they have a certain depth that you have to zoom before you see more observer windows. We have observer windows, they're neurons, let's say. Zoom, 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 nothing, no observers, no observer windows. Bam, proteins, these are observer windows. Keep zooming, more time passes, more observer windows, right? Zoom out from the neuron, nothing, 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 nothing. Bam, brain nuclei. So the idea is that observer windows are not arbitrary. They're not anywhere. There are clear boundaries on what can be an observer window and where you find the observer windows. They're not infinitely spread like at all, at all levels, but there's some sort of ratio or some sort of mathematical description for when observer windows show up in your body. 
and in your in your brain. And so a fun question here uh, is how deep can we go? You know, is it turtles all the way down, right? The, the, the classic example of uh, the earth is flat, there's a turtle holding it up, but who's holding up the turtle? Oh, another turtle, but who's holding that turtle up? Oh, another turtle. Oh, it must be turtles all the way down, right? How deep does this observer window fractal go, right? Who knows? Maybe you hit Planck scale and that's the last observer window. You got these Planck scale observer windows and everything's kind of built up out of that level. If we zoom out, are there observer windows at larger, more macroscopic, slower scales? Maybe. Maybe biology is complex and biology needed to be evolved. And so we are the largest observer windows on the planet. And maybe we are giant observer windows relative to the rest of nature and rest to the world around us, right? Maybe there are larger observer windows. What would that look like? Very speculative, almost into the woo-woo range, but uh, interesting and fun to think about. Okay, observer windows are limited. They are difficult to create and they're defined by a high degree of synchrony. How high is the synchrony requirement to be an observer window? Well, you know, Jonathan Schooler and I are going to move forward publishing this paper, thinking about this just very classical, um, sort of simpler terms, just talking about electrical activity and coherence and synchrony is kind of a matter of degree, you know, where coherence is weak coupling, synchrony is strong coupling, but it needs to be strong enough that it forms that functional unit, right? However, if you take a quantum computer, quantum consciousness take on all of this, what if synchrony was really quantum coherence? And here the terminology gets very confusing because the word quantum coherence sounds like the other word for coherence. But the idea here would be that really, really strong coupling would be you form a single wave function, a bunch of quantum bits, they're all entangled, they form a single quantum computer. And so the observer window is a quantum computer. The high degree of synchrony that you require is the ultimate level of synchrony. No environmental influence whatsoever. Quantum mechanics has a definition where the superposition and the entanglement effects reign supreme they become dominant when there's no environmental influence and it's like the state of ultimate synchrony right so one way to recast the now model within the quantum consciousness paradigm is to say that observer windows are quantum computers right there are quantum computers and there's quantum computers nested within quantum computers and that gets a little speculative and and wild but then these quantum computers set the, the, the domain of what can be an observer window. And then all other forms of compu quantum computers talking to each other is classical. Classical communication has a phase lag. It has physical constraints on the communication. And so coherence is classical communication between quantum computers. Cross-frequency coupling, it's bizarre, but maybe it's some other form, yeah, of classical communication, or maybe that is yet some third form of communication that we don't really understand yet, right? Synchrony is quantum computation fundamentally. Coherence is this digital classical, maybe, maybe forming a digital computer network. And then that cross-frequency coupling seems to defy either of these forms. And I'll come back to this in our next episode because after this, we're going to dive deeper into these notions of uh, fractal computation. And there's um, some fun ideas out there that um, I'd be remiss to not introduce you to. So look forward to our next episode on fractal computation. And I'll leave you to ponder tonight as you fall asleep are you a single conscious being? Are there nested conscious beings within you? Are you a rich dialogue? Is your mind a corporation of workers working with you for some common goal, which is your life's mission? And this is a collaborative enterprise of conscious beings nested within each other. Um, is that your reality or are you a holistic single individual? 
Or are you a collection of physical processes and chaotic influences? Alrighty, I'll talk to you again very soon.